contrast the dangers of nukes with the dangers of extracting coal from coal mines, for example. Tens of thousands of coal miners have died. The nuclear power plant um, disasters get much bigger headlines, okay, because people fear nukes. And nukes are, that is one of the forbidden N-words of our time, one of the two N-words you're not supposed to use. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to be continuing my interview with the director of the Hayden Planetarium, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. This is the second half of a two-part interview. If you're new to the show, I suggest you go back and listen to last week's episode uh, where part one of the interview is presented. If you're enjoying this content, please hit like on your podcast app. Uh, share it with your friends. I'd like to spread the rational view message of rational public policy, so share it. Uh, bring more people into the fold if you can. Uh, and if you want to discuss your impressions and viewpoints, please join us on our Facebook discussion group, The Rational View. When you discuss rationality, there are many people who thrive in their lives in, in ways that come nowhere near rationality. And these are very important to them, but it would include religion. It would include, like I said, art. It would include any emotions they feel towards someone or against someone. These are very real to people. So um, I, rather than, because rationality is a label. Are you rational or are you not? Whereas I'd rather think of it just tactically, if for any other reason, if for no other reason, to think of it as not branded as rationality, but just say, how close to reality do you want to be? And science has developed methods and tools for you to see what is real, objectively real, so that you can make decisions that are in the best interest of your life, uh, your health, your longevity, and for your loved ones. Yeah. So, so that's just, a, I just put that out there. Yeah, I mean, we have to obviously separate the the realms in which we need rationality and my goal is to get rationality in public policy um you know rather than art or, or religion um which have their own spheres of influence and are very important to to the human condition um public policy is kind of my focus for the rational part <laughs> and that <laughs> that's the struggle to separate you know the separation of church and state and all of that um obviously is at the root of this you know, getting back to climate change, uh, I think some of the extreme weather events that we're seeing now are maybe helping to break society out of immobilization. And maybe we're turning a corner on denialism. I'm not sure. There seems to be a groundswell of recognition of the issue. And maybe we're, we're past the knee on climate change denial. And now we need to turn our attention to solutions. I agree with you, but I think it was hard earned. And it took way longer than it should have because uh, I, I tracked it. It started out, no, there is no climate change. And then it became, okay, there is climate change, but humans aren't causing it. And then there's more and more people saying, okay, humans are causing it, but I don't think we can do anything about it. 
or I don't think we should do anything about it. So that's, that's progress in a sort of perverse sense. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it, it starts, by the way, the military and insurance companies are all in on climate change because um, climate change around the world destabilizes geopolitics when you have climate change refugees and uh, the supply chain to support people whose entire villages or cities are, are knocked out of what, you know, by, by whatever massive weather incident mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is responsible. So, so yes, I mean, the more people it hits, and it wasn't just the, the, the hurricanes, of course, you have especially the wildfires, the droughts, the floods, the, um, of course, there have always been wildfires and droughts and floods. We're now talking about the frequency of these things. We're talking about the intensity of these things. And uh, you have, a once in a century flood happening twice in a decade, you know, so that's, that ought to wake you up. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. See what's going on. I think maybe it is uh, now we have to kind of turn our attention to how are we going to solve this pickle that we're in? Um, how do you, how are we doing? How, how do you think the world's doing on that? You want me to give it a grade? <laughs> do you want me to? <laughs> I'm reminded, I saw a comic, which was really funny. Uh, it came out maybe five years ago. Uh, there's a climate, change a science, climate scientist giving a talk, you know, and, and the climate change scientist is talking about sort of improving the world, reducing the carbon footprint, and it also reduces pollution and other things, and all the ways you can just make a greener world. And someone raises their hand, gets up and says, what if you're wrong? What if we make, <laughs> what if there is no climate change and we make a better world for nothing? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a that was a cute, a cute point. Yeah, no, I'm I'm on side with that. So, you know, I focus a lot on on solutions with with my listeners and and looking at energy systems, especially in decarbonizing the grid and and pushing towards you know getting rid of fossil fuels, replacing it. On that, on that note, I really enjoyed watching your reboot of Cosmos, uh, Carl Sagan's original grand work, until the, the episode on future energy systems where you just, the show failed to mention the one energy source that we know is capable of decarbonizing the economy. Oh, nuclear. <laughs> France did it in a decade, right? <laughs> that was my only criticism of an amazing series. <laughs> what, what was going on there? Yeah, so... Um, so a couple of things. First, uh, the secret sauce of all three cosmoses, 1980, 2014, 2020, I had the privilege of hosting the second two of those three. Uh, the secret sauce there is Andrian, who is uh, the widow of Carl Sagan. And I, th I think she was mostly in his shadow when he was sort of at his prime. They had a couple of books published together, mm -hmm. but people were only thinking of Carl Sagan and his, and without wondering what could be her influence on his writings or his outlooks. Um, it's Andrian that her influence on the scripting, on the scenes, on the storytelling, is what allows you to watch a cosmos and never at any point think to yourself, I'm watching a documentary. No, you're not thinking that. There's, there, I don't think there's a word for what cosmos is mm -hmm. it's informative it's entertaining it's 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 even spiritual in a in a sort of secular sense it's um uplifting it has all these factors that you don't normally find in a 
sort of documentary. Part of it is, uh, yeah, we probably could have talked about nukes. Uh, I think the, 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 to do so, we'd have to then talk about, um, because you can't just say something unless you do it properly. And we'd have to say, contrast the dangers of nukes with the dangers of, of extracting coal from coal mines, for example. Uh, compare the dead from both of those. And there's no contest, of course, the coal mines win the dead contest, uh, you know, tens of thousands of coal miners have died. Um, but of course, the, the, the power plant, the nuclear power plant um, disasters get much bigger headlines. Yes. Okay. Because people fear nukes. And nukes are, that is one of the forbidden N-words of our time. One of the two N-words you're not supposed to use. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, rather than introduce it, then talk about the fact that they're safer today than they were in Chernobyl. And they're safe, that it was too much. So we said, let's just leapfrog even that, and then go into a distant future where you don't even need nukes, because more sunlight hits Earth's surface than all of civilization uses or will ever use. And so um, it, 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 was, it, was an, it was an excuse to think very forward about this challenge rather than retread something uh, that has improved over the decades, but would still have risk. And most recently, of course, is the Fukushima um, disaster that uh, I don't know, I, I didn't follow up on the, on the health consequences of the Fukushima uh, power plant disaster, but that came about, of course, because of a tsunami after an earthquake in Japan, and Japan is in the ring of fire, uh, that entire arc of Earth's surface, where you have continental plates moving, we have a lot of action, uh, volcanic and uh, action as well as earthquake action. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we just didn't go there. It was yeah. easier to not go there. On, on the on the Fukushima one, I've I've spoken with uh, senior scientists on the uh, UN panel on. Um, uh, ionizing radiation uh, or effects of atomic radiation, un- unskeered, I think it's called. Um, Jerry Thomas uh, from the UK, especially, uh, was who runs the Chernobyl Tissue Bank and does childhood leukemia and, and that sort of thing. And you know, I've talked with them, and they've said basically that the the amount of radiation that came out of Fukushima is unlikely to harm anyone. Um, so. I think the ra- the risks of radiation are overblown, as you say. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like the high profile um, jet crashes that happen once a decade, um, right? That force people to go drive their cars, right? Right, right. But uh, there's another side of this which complicates the calculation or the in- interpreting what's happening. So uh, a coal mine collapse kills just the coal miners. It doesn't kill their families or anyone else in the town. So it's a very local thing. A plane crash can kill people on the ground. Most of the time it doesn't, but it can. And the and of course you're not in control of that. Whereas in a car, you believe you're in control of all parameters. So that if there's an accident, you think I can, I'm a good driver, I can swerve out of it. In an airplane, airplane's going down, there's nothing you can do. You're, ju- you're just sitting there waiting the moments for you to die. The, uh, with a nuclear power plant exposure, um, since we're still speak of the contraction of cancer probabilistically, right? There's the number of people who would get cancer 
without it in a zone. And then all you can do is say, what is the increase in that risk that the nuclear disaster will bring? Is it 15% increase on the already low risk? Well, people hear the 15%, they say, oh my gosh, there's a 15% when it was previously zero. No, it's 15% on this other low risk that you would otherwise get it. So here's what happens. So it spreads out, and as it spreads out, the intensity of the ionizing radiation or the particles that are responsible for the ionizing radiation, that intensity drops, okay? If it stays sort of two-dimensional, it drops as the square of the distance from the from the release point mm -hmm. and so but the area grows as the square of the distance to the release point so the total number of people exposed goes up as the as the intensity of the radiation drops and so what you end up getting is these two effects kind of cancel each other and so you you end up with the same number of people who might want to claim that their cancer was attributable to the, the leakage. And so that, that it, because it spreads out that you have this weird geometric arithmetic. It's not weird, it's just simple, straightforward geometric arithmetic about the, and then if you get cancer, how are you gonna prove it was a Fukushima cancer and not a cancer you would have otherwise gotten on your own? Because there will be people in these concentric rings that will get cancer with or without Fukushima. And that makes it very hard. And it makes it a public policy nightmare to disentangle those two phenomena. Yeah, yeah, this is this has been the problem is that people have the perception that they're getting cancer from the radiation when in actual fact, the environmental uh, challenges to your DNA are orders of magnitude beyond anything from the radiation, the background radiation levels that we have every day, right? Exactly. That's, so that's how you'd have to give that information because, you know, a person who is aff afflicted by it is not responsive to the statistics that they shouldn't have been, right? So, so what you do, you, you can just give the general background radiation flux and say this is one one hundredth of that or one one thousandth of that. And uh, to the extent that that brings peace of mind, I don't know. Because, like I said, as we know, a nuke is a is a bad word. We we try to do it in bananas because bananas have high potassium, which is partially radioactive, and so you can say, okay, you've been exposed to half a banana of radiation. Yeah, yeah. That so that, that'd be a way to do that. <laughs> that's the that's the way you'd have to speak of this. Well, by the way, just to be clear, um, it's an isotope of potassium is radioactive, so not just straight out potassium. So for any volume of potassium, there'll be some that are radioactive, and that's where, where you get that. Some fraction of the naturally occurring potassium is, is radioactive. Yeah. The public policy aspect of this is, is quite um, intensely battled these days, in Europe especially. You look at the, um, the European uh, EU is, is putting together a, a package of uh, a taxonomy, for a green taxonomy to... to help transition away from fossil fuels and the fight to have nuclear excluded uh, being led by the Green parties in Germany uh, is 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 quite something and as Germany is trying to shut down all of their nuclear plants the 
The European Joint Research Committee recently concluded that nuclear is as safe in terms of the, the potential dangers to society as any other power source we have. Yeah, it's come a long way. Right, right. When it comes to solution discussions, it appears to be mostly ignored. It feels like it's kind of a mass science denial. Well, so then what has to happen there is uh, we start running out of fossil fuels and people didn't act on sort of green energy fast enough, so the price of oil goes up because the, the, it's becoming more and more scarce, and whatever else we've been doing is not making up for that gap, and then people will, I think, embrace nukes because they don't want to spend half their paycheck to drive their car. Yes. Uh, their now electric car, which still has to use coal because the electric companies can't keep up with green fuel. So it's, so it's a race, I think. And um, people have a way of changing heart when the economics demands it of them. <laughs> yes. And so that's a possible scenario. Unless there's such a pace of building wind farms and, and hydro and, and, and tidal power and all these other ways that people have come up with. If that catches up, it catches up and then we don't need nukes. I, mean, I don't have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. It's the massive scale of, of the problem as the IPCC is, is placed it is is daunting. We I think we need to be expanding in all of our green options. If you look at the IPCC report recently, they said to get to 80% decarbonization, we need to something like double or triple our our clean electrical outputs from from current standards over the next 15 years. Yeah, what complicates that is, of course, the ocean uptakes CO2 so that as we drop our CO2 levels, let's assume we even succeed at that, the, the ocean, the, the way the chemistry works, it has the, the, there's a chemical equilibrium for every chemical species that's in the air with what's dissolved in the ocean. And so if you remove the CO2 from the air, CO2 then gets outgassed, if you will, from the ocean returning it back into the air. So, so we have to not only remove the CO2 from the air, we have to remove the CO2 from the ocean as it gets returned to the air to make sure that the, uh, the level of the air can stay low. Yeah. So, so that's another sort of challenge in the, in the full, fully recognized uh, climactic cycling that, that's going on. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's stop digging before we <laughs> worry about that. <laughs> and by the way, I would say, uh, let me just throw something out there. Sure. Um, there's no reason in principle to demonize energy consumption because there's, the sun has unlimited energy. So, um, so does the earth for that matter. Iceland used to burn coal and now in recent decades, they converted essentially completely to to geothermal, because Iceland is sitting on a volcano, basically. So there's, so they heat their roads, so they don't have to plow it in the winter. Okay, <laughs> that's when you have extra energy. That's the kind of stuff you get to do with it. And so imagine a future. I don't know how close we are to this, if or ever, but imagine a future where we have a, a way to systematically remove the CO2 from the atmosphere. Okay, just remove it. Yep. And CO2 scrubbers. Uh, there's some place on Earth where wind runs steady and, you, and the air goes through, the CO2 drops out and it gets buried. 
If you can do that, then we control the, it's a geoengineering project where you control the CO2. You can tune it to whatever level you want. And it won't matter how much buried fossil fuels you burn. It just simply won't matter. And this is, a, this is unthinkable to people. So the only restriction there is one day we're going to run out of the fossil fuels. Okay. And so, yeah, you still want to be ready for that day regardless, even if it had nothing to do with climate change. I, th I think right now the state of the art for, for removing CO2 from the air takes about 90% of the energy uh, that you would have got from burning the fossil fuel uh, at the start. So it's, it's not. <laughs> no, so what you do is you get that energy from the sun. You use sunlight to remove the CO2 from the air. That's how you do that. Because that's free. Energy from no, it takes energy to build solar panels, and then that that has a carbon. No, footprint. but you only build it once, right? Yes, um, every twenty years. You build years. it once, and then you use it for its usable life. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a continuously draining source of energy for you. Yeah, it takes energy to build a, an electric car. I feel like renewable is a is a false title because every power source requires investment in the material to harvest and every harvesting uh, infrastructure has a lifetime. So, you know, renewable, yes, the source is renewable, but effectively the, the amount of nuclear material in the world is also renewable on that basis and that you, you have enough to last for billions of years. So I find that that biases the the uh, discussion towards kind of a yes it's natural it's it's kind of the appeal to nature fallacy that yes it's natural but it's not you know that doesn't necessarily make it better yeah so nukes are basically renewable in the for the reasons you stated you know there's an unlimited particularly fusion nuclear fusion if we get to fusion reactors uh there's an unlimited amount of hydrogen around so uh yes i mean the universe is 90 something percent hydrogen <laughs> so this is not a pro this is not a uh, this is not a challenge here we're not running out we're not running out uh, the uh, the point here is uh, whatever it is you're making that consumes environmental materials and that has to be made with the invocation of energy in principle all ultimate sources of energy can be traceable to the sun in that supply chain and so I, it just ha doesn't happen to be that way right now, right? You drive your electric car that was made out of materials that required oil, the burning of oil to create. Mm -hmm. So, okay, but I only burn that oil once for my car. Yes, the car has a life expectancy. And so it's a start, but you are right. The full renewability and the full green greenitude, or I need a word there, the full <laughs> greenness of what of the action is not realized at the level most people think it is when they're doing it. That's Indeed. certainly the case. Indeed. But it's a start and people have to start somewhere. And yeah, we need to, to attack this on all levels because it's a huge problem and it's big. So moving on. I want to get your opinion. Uh, are you excited about the James Webb Space Telescope? Finally, the launch date has been established. I don't know when people will be uh, tending to this uh, post posting, but as of this posting, it's just a few weeks away. And I'm, I'm delighted. It was many years in the making and, you know, the cost overruns and things, but it's a unique scientific instrument. It's being heavily tested because it's, you only get one shot at this. Unlike the Hubble, we're not going to get to go back to this and, and repair an error. So we're all looking very closely. Uh, we want to make sure it goes well, and we expect groundbreaking science to come of it. 
which was the whole point of its design. It's going to it's going to see the formation of galaxies in the early universe. Yes, as well as dig deep into gas clouds that are nearby, and get unprecedented res- resolution in the formation of planets and star systems in general. Wow. So we all very much look forward to it. Yeah, I was actually part of the, the team that delivered Canada's biggest astronomy space astronomy instrument ever, the, the fine guidance sensor and uh, nearest instrument oh, nice. uh, to NASA. We delivered that back in 2012, uh, just when Congress was voting on whether to cancel the whole project. <laughs> <laughs> and, and let me say something about Canada. It was interesting. Practically every image we ever saw of the space shuttle deploying a satellite, there was the Canada arm. Yes. <laughs> and yes. what's weird was, iconic. no matter its orientation, it always just said Canada arm in full <laughs> view. It wasn't ever upside down or anything. It was That was the hardest engineering bit. <laughs> <laughs> was it gimbaled in a way so that it always was a Canada arm? It was his own advertisement every single time. So that was quite impressive. The, the, the JWST project is a huge project. I was first involved in concept studies on what was called the Next Generation Space Telescope back in the late 90s. NGST, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. it's, you know, a 20-year journey for people, you know, entire careers uh, developing instrumentation for this and testing it. And people in, in the public see billions of dollars spent on space astronomy and say, why aren't you spending this money on solving world hunger? You know, you, you should be doing this. Yeah, uh, the money isn't just tossed into space, right? Th- this money does go <laughs> to salaries of, of highly qualified people here on the ground that pay taxes. <laughs> What, what, how do you how do you uh, respond to people who who suggest that spending money big money on astronomy is wasted? Well, so when people cite hunger and poverty and other challenges of the world, um, you know my 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 raw answer to them this this doesn't gain ad- adherence or anything, but it's true that all the problems they listed were around before anyone ever put anything into space and. So to now have these problems and then want to blame the existence of a space program on those problems that predated the space program, I think is, doesn't, is not honest about the run of the history of people's attempts to solve problems. That's my first. Second, you can ask, well, how much is NASA spending on space? If you ask those very same people, they will give you the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. You say, well, here's the federal budget. Here's a dollar. How much of that dollar goes to NASA? And they'll say, oh, 10%, 20%. And then you tell, that's what the, their answer will be. I'm telling you right now, that is what their answer will be. Wow. That's, if they ever had those thoughts. I wish. And then I say, no, <laughs> it is uh, less than one half of one penny on a tax dollar. And if you take a, a physical paper dollar and then cut off one half of one percent of it, you would not even notice that the dollar changed because it doesn't even get into the ink. It's still on the border of what it is. So, so to cite space as the reason why you're not otherwise solving these problems is disingenuous. Third, I analogize it to being in a cave. So we're all in a cave 30,000 years ago. And then some group of us say to the elders, and back then the elders would have been like 32. <laughs> Cave elder. Because <laughs> so, everybody's dead by so 40. Old. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So we'd say, oh, we want to go outside the cave because we see like mountains and valleys and hills and trees and plants. And so we want to see what's out there. And the cave elders say, no, uh, we have cave problems we have to solve first. Solve the cave problems first before you leave the cave. That's exactly what you sound like to me. Yes. Realizing how vast the universe is and how tiny Earth is relative to it. You're going to say, don't explore the universe because we have cave problems on Earth we have to solve first. Um, that, is, um, that is an extreme expression of short-sightedness. And no, I can't tell you in what way our problems will be addressed or solved by discoveries made in space. No, I, can't, I, I don't know. That's the whole point of research, okay? The, the D part of R&D is, yeah, I got something, let's turn it into something practical. But the R part of it is, I, I don't know. In the 1920s, when very brilliant people were giving their attention to the discovery of quantum physics, uh, might you have said, we can't do that going into the 1930s. We have the depression. We need you to solve these depression problems. And we said, no, I want to think about the atom. No, we don't have that luxury to do so. And quantum physics is now the foundation of all modern information technology because there is no creation storage and retrieval of information without exploiting the tenets of quantum physics. Yeah, that would take several decades, um, 30, 40, 50 years to fully exploit, but that was a frontier of discovery that no one had any idea how it would ever apply to our civilization. And now we couldn't have civilization without it. Yeah. So, no, that in that case wasn't space. We didn't know how to get to space yet. But it represented a frontier that any socially conscious person might have questioned in the day. Because it involved very smart people and a lot of money. That's a great perspective. Uh, so, no, that takes longer than an elevator pitch to communicate. <laughs> but it, it's all true. And I want to believe that people will take it, reflect on it, and come back with a different answer. Indeed. So it looks like we're getting towards the end of our time slot here, and I'm really excited to have had you on The Rational View. Let me tell you, one of the goals I set myself when I started this podcast was to get Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson on the podcast, uh, because I love the way you explain things and and the interest, uh, how well you you express these things to the public. Um, So thank you so much for that. Well, I'm happy to serve, and it's um, uh, often just uh, an, an aside here. Uh, I get requests to be on podcasts all the time, and the, the urge of many podcasters is to try to give me the list of famous people who have been on their podcast. And what they don't know is that I really don't give a shit. <laughs> I don't care who else you've had on. <laughs> is your heart in the right place? Is your mission statement in the you're trying to make a better world? Uh, then I'm there for you. So. Now, there are a lot of podcasts in the world. I think it's passing a million right now, regularly produced podcasts. So now I don't have time to be on all of them. But if there's one called the Rational View, I'm all in. Right. Awesome. That is great. I really yeah. appreciated that. So now that you're here, I need to set another goal. Do you have any suggestions for who I should be looking for next? Uh, hmm. I think you should cross the lane more. Okay. Okay. You should find a sort of a, a hip pastor who, and have a conversation with someone who, who, who is religious but still embraces science and find out what makes them tick and why is it that they embrace science but other pastors don't. Hmm. You know, try to reach 
into places because that's a big swath of what society is. Then you get to broaden that dialogue and broaden your audience and find out what makes people tick. And there's some very high profile people in that lane, but it wouldn't matter. You want people who have views that are at least well thought out. I don't have an exact list for you, but I'll just give an example. You know, the head of the National Institutes of Health in the United States, Francis Collins, is a, is a PhD biologist, biochemist, and he's a devout Christian. And so Christians like claiming him, see, you can do great science is, and, and still believe in Jesus. But what they, they're missing is the fact that he is not denying evolution. Right? He's not denying uh, that we have common ancestry with apes. He's not denying the five billion year age of the earth. Right, So you can look at where he sits here and he's more, quote, one of us than he is one of the fundamentalist mm -hmm. religious group. And so, so that's, it's interesting to just see how people land on this spectrum rather than only ever giving a point of view from the edge. And that, I think, will assist in, in, in all conversations with aunts and uncles at Thanksgiving. <laughs> It'll give you some insights into where everybody's coming from so that if you're trying to bring them to a new place, you uh, take them to a new place, then you've got, you, you'll have greater insights into how they think for having done so. Excellent. I'll, I'll have to do that. So thank you so much for being on The Rational View. Uh, it's been great. All right. Happy to serve. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.